What's a ninja's favorite soda? <laughs> I have no idea. A slice. Ha! <laughs> I know. These jokes are terrible. But we keep them coming. Hello, and welcome to the Startup Stack. I'm your host, Lewis Burrell, the founder and CEO of Rocketplace. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the weird and wonderful world of domain names with Bill Sweetman, founder and president of Name Ninja. Be prepared. Some of Bill's stories, and I am not kidding, play out like the scenes from a James Bond movie. We're going to talk about bags full of money and international agents speaking six languages, as well as the more practical aspects of acquiring a domain name. With that in mind, here's Bill. One, two, go. So... I wanted to jump in and start with a little bit about the industry you're in. So, you know, it's, 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 um, domain names are a really fascinating thing because I think all entrepreneurs, no matter where they are all around the world, have this experience where when, when you're starting a business and getting going, or, you know, even you've been going for a while about thinking about what is the domain name? How does it affect the naming of my business? How do I register it? Um, I have certainly been there where almost like this sense of panic can set in and your domain has been taken or, you know, is currently being used. You can't figure it out. How do you, how do you acquire it? Um, so I think this is really probably very common. You probably deal with a lot of entrepreneurs that have no idea how much it should cost or, you know, how they're going to solve this um, and could be very emotional. But maybe just, just to start... I'd love to hear from you, you know, to, to describe for our listeners, like what is domain name brokering and, and what, what, what is it that you do and do not do? So there's two, two types of domain brokers. There's a, a buyer broker, which is what we are, and then there's the seller brokers. Um, so a buyer broker represents the buyer's best interest. Buyer broker's goal is to help that client acquire the target domain name or domains, you know, within the a specific time frame and ideally within the specific budget. A seller broker represents domain owners. Their job is to find potential buyers and sell uh, the domain to them. Some brokers wear both hats. Um, here at Name Ninja, we focus exclusively on the buy side. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your story. How did you become a domain name broker? How long have you been in this industry? So I've been helping people with domain stuff for 26 years at this point, but not full-time. Um, I started because I was working for a television network and helping, trying to help them understand this newfangled web thing. <laughs> and uh, as part of helping to understand that, I, I, had, I wanted to create my own website. Uh, so I could understand what was involved in building a website. And in order to do that, I needed to register a domain name. And so I f figured that out. In fact, I couldn't get my first choice. I had to settle for something else because <laughs> I didn't know there were brokers at that time. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and, and over time, as I worked in different sort of media and marketing uh, roles, that um, people would come to me or know to come to me as that guy that knew something about domain names. And... Uh, I uh, became more and more sort of fascinated by the creativity of domain names. Um, and I, I stumbled across this sort of almost at the time kind of underground economy of people that were actually buying domains as investments with the aim of reselling them. And what what year is this? What are, what are we talking about? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, maybe 15 years ago is when I came across uh, the, yeah, about 15 years ago, there was... So like 
post.com bubble. Yes. But yeah, okay. there was a, a seminal article. It was a cover story in, I'm, I think it was Business 2.0 magazine, I, which I don't know if it's still around, and but I think that was the magazine. And they did this cover story about this Canadian doctor who was one of the leading domain speculators at that time. And they put him on the front cover. And it was something like the man who owns the internet. Something was something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. His name's Kevin Ham. Brilliant gentleman. Um, and this was, I think, the first mainstream article that kind of blew the doors open about this huge underground business of speculating in domain names. So around that time, I'm I'm, you know, I'm I'm dabbling in domains. I'm helping people with domains. I'm working as a VP at a big ad agency in Canada. And I actually get the opportunity to join a friend of mine who works for Two Cows, which at the time was, I think, the third or fourth largest domain registrar in the world. And they, they were looking for somebody to help manage their internal portfolio of domain names. I eventually got that job. And that was just this life-changing experience for me because... That was, I think, 2007. So that was my full-time, first full-time uh, gig in the domain industry. I'm just seeing it from all different angles there, plus managing this portfolio of about 300,000 domain names that were for resale. And, and this, is, this is what the larger company owned? Yes. This, this, so they own this, this portfolio of resale for resale. I've always wondered about that. So we have these larger companies like Two Cows, like GoDaddy, and they're the registrars, but then we also have all these speculators out there. But then, as you point out, some of the registrars have large portfolios. And it's kind of always, I've always wondered, why don't the registrars, why didn't they just own all the, like, why do they sell them so cheaply? Why don't they just gobble them all up for for cheap prices and then sell them at more expensive prices? Are there laws around this? Like, The laws evolved over time. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the domain registrars actually owning their own portfolios was sort of allowed through a bit of a loophole. Mm-hmm. And companies like Two Cows especially, which is a very ethical company, was and still is, they they struggled with this. But there was just too much money to be made and it wasn't illegal. So they they built up a portfolio and it became a very successful business line for them, which I ran. Um, they subsequently divested themselves of that portfolio. In fact, they, they sold it to GoDaddy. So oh, GoDaddy, go. and GoDaddy didn't have a portfolio for a while. Uh, they secretly had one for a while. That got shut down. And then they eventually started picking up portfolios. And now GoDaddy actually has a, uh, one of the largest portfolios for resale. Fascinating. And so, you know, in these early 2000s, you know, you're you're starting to meet people like Kevin and you're starting to work at Two Cows. How how big was the industry back then? Um, you know, how many how how many domain name speculators are we talking about? Um, is you know, is this a really small community and everyone kind of knows each other? And has that changed a lot as the technology landscape has exploded? I mean, 10 plus years ago, it was a cottage industry. It really was very small. There might have been 10 or 20 people who had great sort of technical expertise and just kind of knew the secrets at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, they were some of the early stage investors that figured out how to acquire domains and build up these portfolios. Um, they started to mentor other people and it grew. 
But in terms of size, nobody's ever been able to figure out how big or small the industry is. But I'll, I'll give you a, a sense of it. Let me back up. One of the reasons people don't know how big it is is because most of the sales are not publicly disclosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, the bulk of the sales are big ticket sales and they're never disclosed. Um, but when the, the industry as a whole would get together for like the annual conference, that would be 300, 400, 500 people tops. Um, I think the biggest attendance at any domain industry conference for the domain speculators may have topped out at around a thousand people. And that includes vendors and suppliers. So yeah, that's a pretty small industry. Yeah. And you know, it's 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 fascinating. You know, just a second ago, you were saying, you know, the title of this article was The Man Who Owns the Internet. And it, you know, it feels like an industry that is perfectly positioned to be more heavily regulated. And I'm wondering why isn't it more heavily regulated? How have the regulations changed over the last decade or two? Yeah, I'm thinking the the registrars, they're subject to the guidelines of ICANN, which is sort of a, a multi-stakeholder community-driven organization that sort of is in charge of managing the domain space. Um, but the speculating side, there's not really <laughs> any regulations there. Mm-hmm. Um, I Partly because it's like, where, where do you... What bucket does it fall in? Um, so, and, and that's kind of, on the one hand, it's like the Wild West. Yeah. And there's great opportunities, but then there's people that, you know, are, 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 the, <laughs> are the villains of the piece and, uh, you know, don't necessarily behave in the most ethical manner. Um, uh, but there's, there's not a lot of regulation. Yeah. Um, and and then one thing I find a little challenging is that because it's unregulated, anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves a domain broker. Mm-hmm. There's no certification. There's you know there's so so anybody that operates in the sort of domain speculating space that is not ethical kind of tarnishes the image of the majority who are very ethical players. Well, I think that's a that's a good segue to to get into Name Ninja and and what you've built and how you founded it. As a person who has purchased a lot of domain names for businesses and struggled through that, I imagine that most people you meet actually start with the services offered from GoDaddy or Two Cows. And so maybe you could tell me a little bit about how Name Ninja fits into the industry of these larger competitors and what were you seeing that motivated you to start Name Ninja and what were some of the struggles that you've had with building your company? So the motivation to start happened, I, I was working at Two Cows, and because we had a portfolio of desirable domains, a lot of times I was dealing with buyer brokers, independent buyer brokers, approaching me on behalf of their clients. And so I got to know these people. And mm-hmm. you know, I started to see that you know some of these people were... They were working off a laptop. They were traveling the world. It seemed like an amazing mm-hmm. lifestyle business. And they seemed to be making good money and, and seemed to be enjoying the work. And I started to think about, wow, um, 
I, I was always getting asked to do effectively what I call buyer broker work. People are always asking me, hey, I want to buy this domain. How do I, how much is it worth? Who should I talk to? And so I was helping friends and colleagues out. Can I, can I, can I jump in? You're saying people are always asking you, but this is also like an industry that no one, that practically no one even knows exists. So how are they even finding you? Well, this is my, this would be my personal professional network. I, you know, I, be working at an ad agency or at a television network, people would know I'm that freak that knew something about the internet, knew something about domain names. Got it. Um, just because of your background, working at Two Cows, et cetera. Yeah. So people just say, hey, Bill knows something about domain names. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yep. So I, I, I started to think about, you know, w- how much I enjoyed just sort of as a side thing, I enjoyed the buyer brokering work. Um, and I also, you know, at that point in my life, I realized that there were some things I was good at and some things I weren't. And I loved working at Two Cows. Um, but it, but the, what I, my strengths and weaknesses got really laid out for me. And I started to think, I wonder if I could focus and just be a buyer broker. I wonder if there's a possibility I, I could do that. So I thought about that probably for a couple of years um, and ultimately decided, you know what, I'm going to take the leap. Um, I'm going to take a swing at this. Um, I figured worst case scenario, the folks at Two Cows would have me back because I would part ways with them on very good terms. So I kind of made a decision sometime in around 2006 that no, no, sorry, 2012, <laughs> that I would uh, put together what I thought would be a service offering that would end up becoming Name Ninja, and I would try it for a year and see what happened. And what, but before you did that, what, what do you think was the biggest thing holding you back from starting Name Ninja? I'm very risk-averse as a person. Um, so the thought of leaving, you know, uh, at that point, a VP-level job to go out on my own uh, was kind of terrifying, um, mm-hmm. and I was the uh, you know the primary breadwinner in the household too. <laughs> sure, um, sure. So that was kind of terrifying, and mm-hmm. I um, I really didn't know if there would be enough business uh, for me. So yeah, you know, I kind of hedged my bets a bit because when I launched Name Ninja, I offered a suite of services including buyer broker work. But I also sort of alluded to, I could help people manage their portfolios. And this was around the time of the launch of what we call the new TLDs. So dot club, dot, dot ninja, dot whatever. So I sort of said I could help people figure that out. And uh, I even sort of hinted that we could help with naming. So I sort of strategically, it's like, okay, Name Ninja will offer a broader set of services and we'll see what the clients want magically as it turns out, people wanted buyer broker work and there was enough of it. Yeah, It's not like I left knowing for sure this would work. In fact, it was, it was the most painful, difficult decision of my life. Um, but it did work out. Um, but I did sort of feel I had a fallback plan. I figured two cows or some of the other companies I'd gotten to know in the domain industry, they would, they would welcome me in, into their fold if this Name Ninja thing didn't work out. But thankfully it did. You know, I should tell the story of um, some of the mistakes I've uh, I've had in buying domain names. And you know, if I look back, 
uh, to my last business, Ernest, you know, we did eventually own Ernest.com. I won't go into the full story here, but we actually launched with meeternest.com. You know, when at the very, very beginning, we tried everything, both figure out and purchase that domain name. I think I called up or used the domain name brokerage services or by their two cows or GoDaddy, that didn't work. Um, I hired a private investigator to try to figure out who it was. I think eventually I thought I knew who it was. So I just started emailing them uh, and offering them money. Uh, I even at one point had an investor suggest that we should just show up at the person's house with a bag full of money. It, anyway, it took years, but we did eventually get the domain name and you know it um, it wasn't cheap. But I, you know I wonder, you know, what do you think about that story? And really more more importantly, when should an entrepreneur be calling you to think about purchasing a domain name and 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 what shouldn't they do uh, before they call you? Yeah, lot, lots to unpack there. Um, you know, I mean, congrats on getting the domain name uh, after all those years. Uh, you know, the things you have to watch out for are if you're the buyer, uh, if you're going direct to the owner, that's risky on a number of levels because you're revealing your identity as as the buyer to the owner. And and why is that? Why is that important to not reveal your identity? Because they could have assumptions that are incorrect about uh, your your financial status, the, you know, the scope and scale of your company, your intentions, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, so so that can significantly spike the price, not in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason it's good to work perhaps with an intermediary is it removes or it should remove some of the emotional aspects of this because it's understandable if you're the startup founder and you really, really want this name, you're going to get worked up about the hunt and you're going to get worked up in the negotiations. Uh, I mean, oh my God, I was so worked up. It was practically all I thought about for years. I mean, it was... Understandably too. I was obsessed. But at the same point, you know, it just takes you one human slip of the tongue (laughs) to say something you know, a little hot to the owner and the whole deal or potential deal falls apart. And and that's why... I would love to hear a story about a deal falling apart. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I've had... <laughs> I've, I mean, that's why you should hire a buyer broker to act as that sort of neutral intermediary. But I've had some situations where we had one deal. It probably took nine months to get the deal kind of into escrow. We were at the final stages. The owner was very sensitive for a bunch of reasons. Um, And the buyer was great. But what happened was the buyer's lawyer got involved and wanted to speak directly to the seller. And uh, I was on that call. I would never allow that to happen without me being on the call. But it was such a personality clash that the seller felt understandably felt quite disrespected and basically he was sort of saying yeah i'm gonna we're gonna cancel this deal and so i had it took another month or two for me to get the seller kind of appeased and back to the table do you still let that happen or are you like no we we can't we can't let the uh any discussions between the buyers and the sellers oh as a general rule of thumb i i try to avoid that i i discourage that immensely um because it's kind of like well if you if you've made the decision to hire an expert to get a job done don't start meddling in it particularly in the final stages like sure (laughs) um and uh, i mean it's very very similar in home buying too where the you know the 
uh, it's usually broker between broker. Absolutely, it's a it, there because it can be very emotional, and it's good to separate those emotions, and it's good to have somebody. Actually, let's use that as an analogy because unfortunately, a lot of people buying homes sometimes will walk in and deal with a seller broker and not realize they're dealing with a seller broker. You you know, seller broker works for the seller. They're not they're not looking after your best interests. So with a domain mm-hmm. name, a lot of people. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll sort of reach out to like a marketplace or they'll, they'll reach out to the, the for sale link on the domain and they end up talking yeah. to a broker and they sort of think that that broker is working for them. And it's like, no, they're not. They're working yeah. for the seller. I've made that mistake, by the way. I mean, did that exact thing. I mean, part of the problem was I didn't even know how to find folks like yourself. Right. And so, you know, if the domain name isn't, is listed as not for sale on, you know, one of these large registration sites, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just like, well, where do I go next? And, and mm-hmm. then the next place to go, the next most obvious place is, you know, GoDaddy's or Two Cows brokerage service, right? But, you know, to your point, you know, they're really more seller brokers. Well, um, it depends. Like GoDaddy has, you know, they have, I think it used to be called domain buy service. They've renamed it something else now. Okay. Um, but you know, they, they have a team there and they, you know, they will, they will help the buyer. Like they, they're actually a bit more neutral than some of the brokers out there. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, a client may choose to work with name ninja because they're getting, uh, a more, uh, direct, uh, relationship with, a senior person such as myself, um, and you know we're gonna we're gonna go that extra length to figure out who owns the domain, um, how to reach them, and how to you know how to get a deal done. Well, and I think that was one of the issues that we faced was I think we did reach out to the domain buy service at one of these companies, and actually they pretty quickly came back with we don't know who this is. Right. Like maybe they, they, you know, they sent some email into the ether, got no response. And that was just like, that was it. So it just went nowhere because they, they weren't even able to contact the seller. It's partly you get what you pay for too, right? Like if you're, if you're paying $69 for broker services, I mean, what do you expect? They'll, they'll maybe send a few emails, maybe try to make a couple phone calls. Like, are you really going to get a lot of investigative work? No. Um, so what's different with, you know, a professional buyer broker that focuses on this is, I, I talk about it being like a cross between detective work and hostage negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we do is we we spend a lot of time and a little, using a lot of different tools to figure out uh, who the identity of the domain owner is. We also spend time trying to understand the psychology of that person. We, we, if we'll look for videos that they may have being in on YouTube, uh, we we really want to understand who it is we will eventually be dealing with. My investor suggested showing up at the house with a bag full of money. Do you have what what other crazy creative tactics have you had to try? the The most recent newest tactic we <laughs> deployed. I gave it a name. I don't even know if this is a real phrase, but I called it flyer bombing. But what we did, there was a gentleman in. Uh, where was he in, uh, Southern California. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
we just could not get him to really engage with us, even though we had his emails and his phone numbers and his fax numbers, and we sent postcards and faxes (laughs) and letters. But it was like, come on, dude, let's have a conversation. So, um, and this is during the height of the COVID pandemic too. So it's like, okay, how can we get somebody's attention? Like we would not want to send somebody to his door, right? Because in that, that, that's just uh, particularly because they were under lockdown in California. So it's like, um, so I, I ended up uh, I ended up hiring a, a guy who was recommended to me. He was a sort of freelance person, but he had a background. He was in special forces in the military, in the U.S. military. <laughs> I didn't know this until later. Um, but he he got up very early one morning. Uh, he mapped out his route. He uh, took uh, about a couple hundred flyers that we designed, and and I think it was like desperately seeking, you know, John Smith, like the name of the domain <laughs> owner, with a message, very polite message, yeah. but yeah. Um, and he I, he printed them on different colored paper, and he got up really early in the morning, and he went to this guy's office and to his home, and he's and he using painters tape. So I told him we don't want to damage the paint or the property, but so using painters tape which is removable tape he plastered he covered the 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 two front doors of the place so you couldn't come in or out without seeing you know these hundred posters the other one that we did i was just i thought i just loved it was we discovered that the spanish businessman would be attending this uh, trade conference in london england and and we knew that they had a booth there. So I actually got one of our agents who's multilingual. I think she speaks six different languages. And she was in London at the time. So we sent her to the conference with our offer letter. And she, you know, basically <laughs> staked, staked out the booth. And when she spotted him, she went right over and introduced herself and, you know, reminded him how serious we were about buying the name. He actually signed the... Uh, the purchase agreement <laughs> right there. So I love that I mean, this is one. crazy. I, it's like a mix of Harry Potter and Mission Impossible. It, you know, it's just like international, um, practically espionage, tracking people down and getting domain names. But, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny. In a certain sense, this is exactly what I thought domain name brokering was all about. Like this level, um, and it, it's, it really resonates with the experience I've had. I'd like to ask you kind of two very related questions. And it would be interesting maybe to talk a little bit about how this has changed over time. I'd love to kind of understand, for the majority of your work, what does it really cost to acquire a domain name? Well, at the same time, I want to know, what's the most expensive domain name you've ever helped someone purchase? Not the actual name. You don't have to tell me that. But like how much was like the, or like how many figures was the most expensive one you've ever seen? Well, I'll give you both sides of that so most expensive was i think 1.7 million us oh my lord for a two-letter.com and that's kind of the you know two-letter.coms these days there are there's a there's a very limited supply of them yeah um entrepreneurs in china own most of them um as investments i know that there's been a lot of domain speculating over the last decades, but how did China, how did entrepreneurs in China happen to acquire those? Why didn't the same domain name speculators, how did those all end up with Chinese entrepreneurs? Well, there was a period of time, I'm going to say five, five, six years ago, where um, Chinese investors were looking at alternative assets to invest in because of the Chinese rules about where they could and couldn't put their money. So domain names were seen as, uh, 
a potentially safe haven. In fact, there was there was this crazy was in the domain industry. It's called the Chinese boom. There was this period about an eighteen month period where um, some eh, perhaps not so ethical um, business people in China were literally running around convincing farmers and taxi drivers and people that didn't even have a computer that they should invest in domain names and they were selling them tons of crap at overinflated prices and making a killing. Um, but th- that aside, a lot of Chinese investors and successful Chinese entrepreneurs um, are very interested in uh, EnglishOneWord.coms and these ultra short domains. And so that's why the most of the, or a good chunk of the two letter.coms that aren't already spoken for by businesses are owned by investors in China. Um, but we were talking about biggest, most expensive name. Um, and then on the cheapest end, I mean, I've had, I love when this happens. We've had clients approach us and they've got a target domain in mind and we'll take a look. And a couple things could happen. One could be potentially we even try to acquire the name and the two sides just can't agree and it, 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 you know, it doesn't happen or something else happens, but either way, it's not possible. But, you know, a few months may go by, a few years may go by, and we always track to see if the domain is going to expire. And sometimes if a domain is going to expire in the next three months and the client can wait, we'll say, hey, we don't even recommend approaching the owner. We think there's a chance here this domain might expire. And if it expires... Bill, I think that happened with us. I think that on both levels, when we, for rocketplace.com, I remember we met you and um, we, we, you know, we engaged with you to, high, to help us purchase rocketplace.com. And then I think it was like a Sunday, just a, like a week or so later, you emailed Ben and you're like, if you go to this link right now, you can buy this for fifteen hundred bucks. I don't know if that was the exact price, but it was on that order. And Ben just bought it. It was like, oh my god, we couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so much cheaper than we thought we were going to get it for. And I think on a second one, it wasn't the dot. No, that one but... wasn't the second one, which we don't have to say what that domain was. But but we had actually attempted to buy the name from the owner over whatever a three six month period, and he just was just had outrageous. Uh, expectations of price, so we we collectively agreed to part ways, and like amazingly, he let the domain expire, and we were able to get it for you. And you know, I think a, a domain that you you were, I think, willing to pay, I don't know, let's say ten grand for or something like that. You know, y- your bill was you know, here's your seventy five dollar domain name. <laughs> so what what do you what's your kind of average? Uh, you know, we don't we don't have to get into exact numbers, but like most clients that come to you, are they are they are they buying domains in the tens of thousands of dollars, the hundreds of thousands of dollars? What's the kind of your bread and butter? Yeah, so a lot of clients come to us wanting to buy a oneword.com, and then we have a very frank conversation with them about what sort of budget is required for a oneword.com, and that kind of budget is typically six figures. And then there could be an immediate sort of adjustment. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, we think we want a different type of name. And then it may be a twoword.com. Um, yeah. And twoword.coms, that's typically in the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. Um, I found that um, on average, our clients are investing about $50,000 for their target domain name. Um, that's just an average. As I said, there's, 
there's the million plus and there's the, <laughs> the, the pick it up in the expiry auction for, for a hundred bucks. We'll talk to anybody and help anybody. But if a client's budget is, you know, under $5,000, we may sort of suggest they go the do-it-yourself route or may suggest some other option for them. Yeah. Well, let me ask the question that I'm, I'm sure all the listeners and entrepreneurs out there are asking themselves is, what should they expect to pay a domain name broker like yourself for helping them with this service? And 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 does that have you, you know, what, what should they not be doing when they are engaging with someone to help them? Well, they should only choose to work with one broker at a time. I mean, shop around if you want, but never have more than one broker pursuing a domain, the same domain for you at the same time. That's just, I think it's unethical. It's certainly stupid because you're competing against yourself. Yep. Um, you know, we, I'll, I'll get to kind of sort of pricing and stuff like that, but it, I wanted to talk about compensation models because there are different compensation models for buyer brokers. Uh, the most common one in the industry uh, is a percentage of the purchase price. And that percentage is somewhere between 10 and 20%. Mm-hmm. A lot of our competitors have that model. A lot of people are used to that model. It's very common. Um, we deliberately don't follow that model because as one of our very early customers pointed out, well, if I'm paying you a percentage of the purchase price, what's incentivizing you to get me the low, get me the domain for the lowest possible price? So we came up with this kind of hybrid model uh, which involves usually there's an upfront retainer and it's pretty modest, especially compared to the overall budget. It's pretty modest. And then there's a success fee and the success fee has two parts. There's a, a flat fee component. Once again, it's, it's more than the retainer, uh, but it's way less than what 10% of, let's say the budget would be. Um, and then uh, the other half or the other portion of the success fee is based on us saving you money on the deal. Yeah. Net, if a client is talking to one of our competitors who charges, let's say, 15% of the purchase price, almost every case, the fee is going to be lower than that. But also, more importantly, from my perspective, our fee is better aligned with the objectives of the buyer. Yeah. And I, I from an, you know, again, putting my entrepreneur hat on, which I do 24 seven. That feels better because what we've done is we've aligned expectations around what we think this should cost. We feel like we're on the same side in terms of saving money, and that that feels really good. I also structure our compensation based on the the specific scenario. So if it's like a very early stage startup and you know the overall budget is modest, but we think it's achievable for the domain. And if I already know the owner of the domain, or if the domain's listed for sale with a buy it now price, then we might even go with kind of a, an eat what we kill kind of model where there's no retainer. You do have to sign a contract usually with us, but we'll, you know, maybe the, it'll be a small success fee plus a percentage of the, of the savings we get. So like it, we do take it on a, bit of a case-by-case basis. We have an internal rate card, but I do look at the scenario. If it's a not-for-profit, I'm going to, you know, come up with a preferred model for them. And a repeat client, you know, we'll work something out. What about COVID? Have, have, how has that affected the industry? Has it, has it affected it at all? Has it become more of a buyer or seller's market as a result of COVID? So I would say in... March, maybe late March, let's say March, 
I think in the domain brokering sort of domain speculating world, there was a little bit of fear. Um, I think some of the clients, I know we had one client pause a project. We had another client cancel a project. So I think for maybe one or two weeks, it looked kind of dire um, and, and, and sales dipped you know, in, in, in terms of the, the, what they call the aftermarket, the premium domain market, but just for a couple of weeks. And then the unexpected happened, certainly for me and for a lot of people is, you know, the world had to figure out how to move online. Those that weren't moving on, weren't online already. And suddenly the domain speculators were telling me that all of a sudden they were getting way more offers, especially on their kind of lower end inventory, like the two word names, the the three word names. And it became a a seller's market and still is, Um, which I think surprised everybody. Uh, And it surprised us. You know, we, we were talking to clients um, maybe let's say in April and sort of saying, Hey, you know, you know, that domain you were interested in, you know, would you like us to talk to the seller? Because maybe the seller is sort of feeling some a bit of pain now and wants to kind of maybe liquidate, might be more reasonable in terms of price expectations. But it just didn't happen that way. Um, people were, the speculators were doing really well. And uh, it, it there was some softness on the very high end for a period of time, a couple of months. But, you know, people came back. And so I'm very blessed that I happened to work in the online space and in a particular weird niche vertical that was not significantly impacted by COVID at all. I just, I I count my lucky stars every day. And I've also been blown away by the ingenuity of the creative mind and the entrepreneurial mind to come up with short and long-term solutions to this crisis. I just look in awe at what people are doing and go, wow, we're, (laughs) don't count the human race out just yet. What's your prediction for the future of the domain name market. How do you think it's going to change over the next five, 10 years? Well, I think it's important to have a global perspective because you'll sometimes hear people, like let's say in North America, and they're kind of like, well, everybody that wanted a website's already got one. So like who who needs another domain name? Or, or people will say, oh, there's apps. You don't need domain names. Or there's VR, or there's voice recognition. You don't need domain names. There's just Google. What, you know. Right, yeah, there's the search engines. But first of all, not true. You need an address for the platform that you own. You don't want to build a brand on a Facebook URL that you don't own. That would be very foolish, but people still make that mistake all the time. Uh, Email needs a domain. Domains can be a call to action. You have to think about the rest of the world. You have to think about Africa and India and, and some of the growing countries in Asia where they're internet penetration and their online business status might have been in the single digits or low double digits. You know, you look in China, where I think the number was something like 2,000 new startups a day happening in China. Most of those are going to need a domain name. And the ones that aspire to be uh, to be a global startup, a global business, they're going to want a .com. There is a lot of demand coming. You know, and people will say I'm biased, but I honestly don't see the demand lessening. But what I do see is people tend to want the same kind of names. As I said, most of the people approaching us, they want to get a oneword.com. There are only so many oneword.coms in the world. Those assets are very rare and they are increasing in value because you can't invent, you can't make new Park Avenue real estate. You can't make it out of thin air. 
I, I, that's why I, I said at one point that I find that people engage with domain buyer brokers too late in the process. I try to encourage clients. I wish this happened. This happens maybe only 5% of the time. I, I consider it a best practice. It's like if you're going through a naming process, whether you're doing it in-house or working with a naming agency, get it down to five or 10 of your shortlisted names, then go talk to your friendly neighborhood domain buyer broker have them give you that perspective on whether that domain or whether each of those, what are the chances of each of those being uh, acquired and what might the ballpark budget be and, and have that influence your decision. Because sadly, so many times clients will come to us, I mean, God bless them for coming to us, but they come to us and they've already painted themselves in a corner. They've already booked, uh, they've already building the website using the domain name. They're already, you know, book television ads. Or they've told everybody, we're going to be fluffy.com. And it's like, guys, the lady that owns that, she's never going to sell that or she's not going to sell that for the budget you, you've got. We've got to come to us earlier. Let's figure out some alternative options here. Last question for you, Bill. You've now built a very successful business. If you could go back 20, 25 years and give the young Bill a couple pieces of advice about building a business and entrepreneurship. What would you say to yourself? Couple of things. I would say if if you have a good network of people that know and like you and think you're good at something, um, don't don't be afraid to kind of niche yourself and and make the leap because that network they'll be there to support you and refer business to you and. And, you know, if things go south, may help you kind of recover from a, a mistake. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I would also say don't be afraid to lean on or just ask for help from your potential partners, even if those partners are kind of competitors in a sense. I think it was last year was kind of a turning point for Name Ninja in that I, I worked even more with quote-unquote competitors. But it's a small industry and we were able to collaborate on projects. So I think people tend to be afraid. It's like, I can't possibly ask that competitor a question or maybe have them work on the project with me. It's like, yeah, you can. Um, Another thing I would do is very early on find ways to measure what's important in the business. You know, and we, we did that by putting a CRM in place within six or nine months of starting the business. And I found that that, has given me insight that I didn't even know I would get. Things like uh, not only the source of leads, but which source actually converts into business, which for me gave me really good insight as a small business as to where to allocate my marketing time and my marketing budget. Really helped me be able to get analysis of projects and kind of go, oh, you know what? That type of project, yeah, we, we think that they're lucrative, but they're not. Or, oh, we're burning way too much time on this type of thing. Or, you know, oh, do we really need to go to that many conferences to get business? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really common thing that we see with a lot of our service providers on Rocketplace, which is a lot of their business does come in by word of mouth. But just even if you think about breaking that word of mouth down, like word of mouth can be an umbrella category. A lot of our businesses aren't as good at is, well, where is the word of mouth coming from? Is it certain folks? Is it, like you said, is it 
coming from conferences, et cetera. And so because they they put everything in the umbrella category of word of mouth, actually, it's hard for them to understand like just what you're saying. Where should we be focus, really focusing our resources so that we can grow our business? We specifically ask, you know, anybody that comes to us, if it's not, if they haven't already been introduced to us by a specific person, we sort of say, how did you first find out about us? Mm-hmm. Because we have to know, <laughs> because then if they were referred to us by somebody, we want to thank that person that referred uh, them to us. And if it was some article they discovered that I wrote or was quoted in, or if it was at an event I attended, I want to know because then it's like, okay, should I still keep going to events or not? <laughs> well, Bill, this has been amazing. So interesting. What experiences you have had and just peeling back a little bit of you know what happens in the domain name industry, which practically every entrepreneur has had to deal with, has just really been fascinating. I have enjoyed this immensely. Thanks for having me. Been great to be here. For more on our conversation today, visit www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. We upload a new episode every week. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. Thanks again for joining us. See you next week. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.